Welcome to Romans Untangle, a podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. This is Season 3, Episode 3. Adam, where are you? Romans 9, 30 to 33. If God is in control of everything, what part do we play in this life? Do we have any free will at all? This week on Romans Untangled, we'll start to explore this age-old and very relevant question. Pastor Steve Treichler here from Hope Community Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I hope your fall is going well. I have been really enjoying fall. It's probably my favorite time of year, just for sure, the the climates. And uh, I just love wearing a sweatshirt and shorts. <laughs> I just think that's exactly what I have on right now. It's just such a great weather. And so I hope wherever you are, you're experiencing it. For whatever reason, I don't know exactly uh, what all the conditions are, but this year we have the most beautiful fall colors all around our state. And so uh, I hope the fall is treating you well this year. This season, and we've been kicking off uh, the beginning of our time by just looking at some of the faithful followers of Jesus with their faithfulness, their faith, uh, and also their flaws. And believe me, they all have some. And we've talked about some of those uh, in the two men that we've looked at already. We will look at some women here as well, but we do have another man we're looking at this uh, this week. Uh, first week, we looked at a man by the name of Athanasius, who lived in the early 300s. He lived to be quite old, actually, in his late 70s. Um, and he was a bishop, and his whole life he went around uh, protecting the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ because there was a very strong doctrine at the time called Arianism, which was named after a man by that name Arius, that believed that Jesus was made and that he was created and that he wasn't fully God at all times. Last week, we looked at probably one of the most famous of the Christian saints, both for Catholics and Protestants, and even Orthodox uh, folks all look at Augustine as one of their big, big saints or big characters of, of church history. He lived from 354 to 430 AD and is well known for being a very prolific writer. Having come to faith later in life, he understood some of the complexities uh, of societal living, uh, of all of the different temptations that were out there that perhaps the people who grew up in the church maybe wouldn't have faced. But he was a prolific writer and wrote many, many things, uh, including his own testimony, uh, which is called The Confession. So just a tremendous person. This week, I want to skip ahead a few years now in church history. We're going to go to 1181, and that's the birth date of St. Francis of Assisi, uh, what I like to call the hippie saint. Uh, he, he, he definitely was a, uh, you know, a lot of these, you don't put the name saint in front of it, uh, just because if you're not Catholic, maybe you don't go from that tradition. But you just got to call it St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, it's just, he, he, was, he was quite a guy. He also did not grow up in a Christian environment, and, li- and he lived his younger days just kind of following whatever he wanted to do. Uh, it included uh, lots of uh, friends and fine clothing and just love of pleasures, what he did. But then he joins the military and starts to do some traveling, and in 1205, Uh, That would put him around the age of 24. He leaves for a military campaign, and it's on this campaign 
that he has a, a strange vision. It's, uh, he, he starts to, starts to see Christ and he, he starts to go away from all of these kind of highfalutin ways. In fact, that's where he starts to become a fan of poverty. A friend asked him whether he was ever thinking of marrying and he said, oh yes, a fairer bride than any of you have ever seen. And what he meant was someone he called Lady Poverty. So he took like this vow of poverty and he starts to become um, just a mystic. He he starts to really seek after Jesus Christ through prayer and just poverty and, and all kinds of different ways. But what he's really famous for is if you come from a Catholic tradition, he starts what's called the Franciscan Orders. And this now is kind of the rise of monastery living. And he now, these people take a life of poverty and they, they want to seek after God in a simple way. Now, why he's important to us is some of his quotes and some of his writings are probably the most uh, important. He's often quoted for this phrase, which says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, the reality is uh, there's nowhere that we can see that he said that. So that one probably is not St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, it's not a bad idea to your life should just reflect Jesus so much, but the New Testament's super clear. You need to use words. (laughs) As a guy who makes his living saying words, uh, yeah, words are part of the gospel message. But the quote, even though I don't think it came from uh, Francis of Assisi, there's nowhere that we can find that. the quote is just trying to say, your life should reflect Christ so that the gospel's attractive to people, which which a great quote. He did say this though, and it is quoted. He says this, and it's beautiful. He says, above all else, and the gifts Christ gives to his beloved is that of overcoming self. Wow, is that relevant to our current culture as well? He also wrote a couple of hymns or prayers or poems, we're not sure exactly how they were uh, done uh, in at the time, they're now made into songs, one of which I'm sure you've heard, the, the, the Prayer of St. Francis, which says, and I want to quote the whole thing, it's so beautiful, actually, it says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love." For it is in giving that one receives. It is in self-forgetting that one finds. It is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. Now, hearing that poem, you can see why he said that quote, that the greatest gift that Christ gives us, the gospel gives to us, is that we can overcome ourselves. And we're no longer just about us. We're actually about serving others and serving God, and Christ becomes everything to us. The other one that he is famous for is one that 
I'm not going to quote it. It's quite lengthy, but it's called The Canticle of the Sun. And in this time period, he uh, took elements of the earth and he'd call them brother and sister. So brother fire, sister water. Uh, I think he calls it brother moon and on and on through all that. But this poem that's put there is later put into a hymn by William H. Draper in 1889, or 1899, excuse me, and it becomes All Creatures of Our God and King, which is a a hymn that is still sung today. So St. Francis of Assisi was this man who just loved God. He saw the need for uh, taking himself out of current culture and the self-pleasures and to seek after Christ and therefore seek after others. And he just becomes an inspiration in church history uh, for us. All right, let's get on to Romans for this week. I can't tell you, I know I say this every week, but I can't tell you how excited I am this week to do Romans Untangled with you. Okay, we're going to pick it up right in Romans 9, verses 30 to 33. Okay, and so here's uh, what I'd like you to do. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Romans 9, right at verse 30, right? And there's probably a heading break there if you're reading from most modern translations. And I'm going to stop two words into verse 32, okay? So, and I'll explain why that is in just a moment, but I want you to see this then, okay? Verse 30, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Okay, and I'm reading that. This one's from the New International Version, okay? Why not? Now, I want you to go back with me to the last two weeks that we have been in Romans Untangled, okay? And so it's really important that you get this in its context. That's what we do on this podcast is we take this very, very difficult passage. Romans 9 is known to be one of the most difficult passages, and we untangle it. So let's go back. Roman, the first week we did the first five verses, and Paul says, I'm not lying. I speak the truth in Christ. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Okay. So he is, in those first five verses, he's saying, he's answering the question wait a minute, if this, if the Old Testament seems to be the story, of the Jewish people, those people who have physical descendants primarily, and a few converts here and there, but primarily the physical descendants of Abraham, why in the world are there not many now? (laughs) Where, where, Where did they all go? What's the problem here, right? And so the big question, and again, you will be saying this all season, did God fail his promises, right? After that, we looked at the the chunk in the rest of, of verse nine, or excuse me, chapter nine, that big chunk where he makes it very clear in verse six, probably one of the most important should be highlighted. If you got a phone, etch the glass. Uh, it is not as though God's word had failed. He wants to make that real clear. Everything he's gonna say from here is gonna stand up to that point. And he's gonna give a whole bunch of reasons why that the God's word had not failed. Okay, so the first thing was, is he's defining, there's a definition going on here of who exactly are Israel. 
And he uses scripture to make this real clear that not everyone who's a physical descendant of Israel is actually Israel. And he goes on to talk about the, the first of all, the that uh, Abraham had two sons, one from the slave woman and one from Sarah. But not only that, so Rebecca also had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God used Jacob, right? And then we pick it up. In verse 16 of chapter 9, he says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And he uses the example of Pharaoh. And he says, I raised you up for this very purpose. I'm reading from Romans 9, 17 here. That I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, right? So what what Paul is stating here is God's purposes, God's sovereignty, God's predestination, God's election, whatever, however, what phrase you ever want to use, is sure, it's going to happen, right? God is in control of all those things, right? That's what he's highlighting here. And then Paul goes after common common uh, objections here. The, the first one is, wait a minute now. If, uh, if in fact, why, why, why would God blame us? If, if God, uh, is God unjust in what he's doing? Because it seems like he's making these, these rules and then we can't, we, we try to follow him and then we, we're not in, right? And, or another one is in, uh, when we go down to verse 19, who can resist his will? He, he's the one who makes things. So really, Really, it's kind of God's fault, right? If if we don't uh, come out the way he wants us to, right? He, Paul, then ends this section by quoting from the prophets because he's saying, even in the prophets, they said, he quotes from Hosea 2 in verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, okay? So what, what's going on here in this first half of chapter nine is we are getting a heavy dose of the sovereignty of God, of God's election, right? Of God's predestination. We talked about this last season and uh, over years of church history, there's been big fights about this kind of stuff. Uh, we find it in... in uh, you know, theology, you'll, they'll say there's Reformed or there's Calvinists or there's Arminians and they don't believe that God elects or chooses individuals. He, God kind of gives a blanket out there for all people and then they can choose whether or not to come. And so Calvinists have, and I, I'm, I'm in this camp, uh, that, that would say, no, no, God is the one who moves in the human heart and then they, they, uh, they come to faith in him. And it's because God takes the first effort. And, and Calvinists would, there's a variety of Calvinists. Uh, you'll see which kind of Calvinist I am in just a moment and it, it infuriates someone. And so if you, uh, if you don't like uh, the way I think, you can just email Paul at NewTestament.com and uh, <laughs> because I'm just following this from the Apostle Paul. It's the way I get it, all right? And so God is sovereign. God is completely sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all people. Not all Israel are Israel, right? God is sovereign. He elects uh, some people and, uh, and, and, and others that, that he, he has not. Now, wait a minute. That raises all kinds of real questions, right? First of all, some would say, did you believe in double predestination? In other words, that God actually elects people to not believe. And I would say no. I don't think that's in the Bible. Um, the closest place could be in this passage, but I, like I said last week, I, I don't go there. However, I believe it does say that God is sovereign over things. 
And we know this because we pray. We pray and we ask God to move in in ways that are contrary to our thinking, uh, contrary to the way human beings would normally go. And we pray for that because we know he's in control of things. It's very, to our minds, it's very complicated. And the question just comes up all the time, wait a minute, that just doesn't seem fair, right? That just doesn't seem right to us. So with that in, with that in mind, with that as the context, I want to go back and read this sentence, or it's kind of a couple sentences here, uh, that Paul begins this section then. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? And what's he getting at here? He says, listen, the churches." Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, those who have seen Messiah as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ and his forgiveness, they're primarily Gentile. And the Apostle Paul is saying, wait a minute now, the Gentiles are in, even though the story of the Bible seems to be about the Jewish people. What is going on here? Not only that, but if you look at, especially at Paul's time, there's a rise of several groups. Paul was part of one called the Pharisees that were, they were kind of the fundamentalists of the day. They went back, they were back to Bible people. And they said, we're going to do this and we're going to do this right. We're going to fear God and we're going to do what he says. And yet they reject Jesus. They're the, in fact, they're the ones that are the instigators that get Christ crucified. Why is that? Paul says in verse 32. Why is that? Well, if you've been following the argument, and this is where you have to slow down, and you probably have already read ahead, (laughs) but if you just follow the argument, what Paul has led you to the cliff, so to speak, he's led you right to the cliff where one more step and you'll be off the cliff. But the cliff is this, God predestined everything, therefore, that's why, right? But Paul doesn't allow you to take that step. What does he say? He says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. In other words, why did they reject Jesus? It's because they, listen now, (laughs) they made a choice. They made a choice not to pursue grace, not to pursue the Messiah, not to pursue faith and say, it doesn't depend on me, but they went after it like it was by works, that they could earn this, that they could make themselves good enough, clean enough on their own. They were trying to follow the law and therefore be good enough. The passage goes on to say, they stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, and he quotes from, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, in this passage, it says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. What's happening here is really the same thing that was happening in Genesis chapter 3. So we'll come back here to Romans 9, but let's go to Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open it, open up to Genesis chapter 3. And after Adam and Eve fall into sin, 
Look what happens here now. It says they took some, they ate it. She, excuse, I better read it just so you get the context here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Okay, Adam, Adam, where are you? Okay, we'll come back to this now. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God then says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat from? Right? It's a yes or no question. And yet Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Okay? So a couple things here I want you to notice in this passage, which is the exact same thing that's happening in Romans chapter 9. And here is what it is. First off, When you cannot handle the shame, you always move to blame. It's just just what happens. Adam can't handle his shame, and uh, he then goes ahead and he blames. Now, who does he blame? Well, the first thing is, there's, there's two words in the beginning. God asks him, have you eaten from the tree? And Adam says, the woman, right? He says, Eve is the one responsible for this. But not only that, he adds in this phrase, the woman you put here with me. So really, God, it's your fault. We would never have had this problem if you wouldn't have put this woman here. (laughs) Right? Okay, so Adam is ultimately going to blame God, right? And that's, but it's Adam's fault. If Genesis 3 is trying to tell us anything, it's that God was not involved in the sin choice of Adam and Eve. And that's, but you're saying, wait a minute, how can that be? How does that theologically work? And we'll come back to that. And it's the same very thing as here. God, or the Apostle Paul in his letter to Romans here, has dialed up the sovereignty of God. So that's what you're thinking about. And ultimately, you're having a hard time saying, It has to be that God's just sovereign. That's why these people are not in the church. That's why Jewish people in the the first century were not coming in droves to faith in Christ. It's got to be because of God's sovereignty. And what does Paul say? Paul says it's because they made a choice. So I like to say I'm a Calvinist who believes in free will. Now, I know that free will in and of itself is a silly concept because we're not free to do anything. I'm not free to live on the moon. I'm not free to live in 19... 32 and on and on and on. But the idea that I have real choices, this passage makes it super clear. We have real choices. The passage before says God is sovereign overall. I don't know how those two work. I'm just comfortable with them because God is sovereign. Therefore, I ask him for things that are way above my pay grade and I know he can move and I ask him to move in the hearts of my friends and loved ones who don't yet know Christ. And at the same time, God has made me responsible for things. How does that exactly work? Like I say, I don't know. I don't need to know. But they are both true, and I affirm them both. Now, the other thing that's going on here is that the, as the reader, 
we are making assumptions about things. I, I When I used to teach systematic theology in our church, I probably did it for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years in a row or something like that. And I, I used to always say in the very beginning, be very careful of your therefores. Let me give an example. Let's go back to the accountant, Adam and Eve. It says, when the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, we read that and go, okay, wait a minute. Okay, Uh, therefore, uh, God has legs and he's a physical being. And therefore, he only likes coolness. He doesn't like to ever be around any other time. And then you go and they hid from him and God asks, where are you? Therefore, God doesn't know not only the past, but he doesn't know the future, doesn't know everything. And then when uh, uh, Adam says, I was hiding, and he says, who told you were naked? It's, it's clear that he's saying he doesn't know the past, that those are just fallacy statements. Right? We all know that that's not true. And once you start to read the Bible, you get past Genesis 3, you keep going, you start realizing God knows all things, past, present, and future. So you got to go back to this passage and say, well, why is he asking them that then? Well, a few reasons. He wants Adam to come to grips with what he's done, but also he's a master teacher. And he's going to show him the fallacy of his ways. It's just like in Genesis 2, when God uh, knows full well that all the animals will not provide us a suitable helper for Adam, and yet he brings them all to Adam so that Adam can see that none of the animals will be sufficient as a suitable helper. But if you see what Adam did here too, he, he falls right in this and he says, God, you're in control of all things, and therefore it's because, because you put this woman here, you're to blame. And that's exactly what's happening in Romans chapter 9, God, you're sovereign over all things. Therefore, if the Jewish people aren't coming in, it's not their fault, it's yours. And Paul's like, uh, no way. That is not the reality. That is not what the problem is. The problem is God's plan and purposes and promises are sure in all of that. And he's even sovereign over all things. You can rest in it. And yet, We have real choices. We have real choices that really matter. Okay, I know that's a mystery. And you're going, wait a minute. I I don't get that. I I understand it. It's like light. Light is both a particle and a wave. Which is it? It's both. And, And this is very much like that. And if it wasn't God, it wouldn't make any sense. But because it is an infinite one who's our creator, we can trust him. And we know that he's always good. And so we can trust him in all these things. Now, he ends the passage that talks about that they did it by works and not by faith. And that that little phrase right there is actually the stumbling block. Next week on Romans Untangled, we are going to unpack that concept, how works as opposed to faith is actually the stumbling block that the Jews fell into. Had a great time with you this week. Can't wait to be with you next week on Romans Untangled.